0: We're going to continue in our series in the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at Revelation chapter 12 today. This is a word of the Lord. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns. And on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. All right. This is a word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, We are going through a series on the book of Revelation. And As we have gone through it, I really do hope it's been uh, somewhat encouraging to you uh, and perhaps maybe before you found the book of Revelation a little bit intimidating to read, and I I hope it's a little less intimidating now. You know, I know some of the details are pretty obscure and uh, last week's passage was uh, pretty difficult. Um, especially if you don't recognize a lot of the imagery from the Old Testament. But, you know, in terms of the big picture, these visions, they've been recapitulating the same message over and over, which is Jesus wins in the end. But before that victory is consummated, there is this period of hardship. And uh, in this period of hardship or tribulation, this is where the church will be attacked. And this period of tribulation is not something that happens entirely in the future, but it is something that we are currently living in. And this is an age where people are going to experience the impact of suffering and evil. This is the age where the church will be persecuted. But what these visions tell us is that as bad as these things might seem, God is still on his throne. Death, war, and famine, and pandemic, and persecution ultimately will not thwart God's plans. It will not thwart the kingdom of God because in the end, God will be victorious. Uh, as I've been thinking about this, uh, you know what came to mind was actually the the last Avengers movies, uh, or technically the last two movies. You know, in in those movies, there is this character named Doctor Strange, and Doctor Strange can look into the future because he uses futures, and he sees that one future out of uh, I don't know how many millions, but millions of possibilities, there's one future where the Avengers beat Thanos, the uh, the enemy. But he also knows that in order for that to happen, what has to happen is Thanos has to get all of the infinity stones first and do all the inflict all the damage that he inflicts in order for there to be victory in the end. And uh, you know, I thought about that movie uh, alongside this message of, in Revelation. And I think in a similar way, when God unfolds his plan of redemption, there is a lot of hardship and suffering. Uh, but it seems to be that that's how God's plan has to unfold in order for it to ultimately lead to victory and redemption. So, as these communities who are being persecuted, these uh, original readers of the Revelation of John, as they receive this prophecy from John, it is meant to encourage them to endure in their faith even in the midst of their hardship, because God is on His throne and He is ultimately in control. The passage that we're going to look at today, um, it's it's operating on the same storyline, the story of redemption, but. Now what it does is it gives us greater insight into another aspect of the storyline, which is a great cosmic and spiritual battle. A few weeks ago, I, I told this joke, and you know I won't repeat the joke, but uh, I told a joke about demons, and basically I made the point that when we hear a joke about demons, we receive it or hear it very differently than maybe people centuries ago might have received a joke about demons. Because today, if you make fun of demons, uh, I think the average person doesn't really think that much of it, whereas maybe a couple centuries ago, people might have gotten really scared and say, don't make fun of demons because of what they can do to us, right? Why? Because centuries ago, spiritual realities were a part of the world that people embodied. It was in the air that people breathe. But for us, we, we live in this secular age, and therefore, it's not part of the air that we breathe. And therefore, I think thinking about spiritual realities, especially as they connect to our experiences in life, it may not come completely naturally to us. Uh, I was reading this book about spiritual formation, and the author made an interesting point. And he, he thinks that there is a greater emphasis on spiritual formation in churches and seminaries today compared to in prior centuries, because uh, we have to be intentional about forming ourselves around spiritual realities. It doesn't come natural to us. All of that is basically to say, it might be a challenge for us to think in such ways uh, and consider how spiritual realities connect to our life experience and related to that. It might be a challenge for us to take seriously the reality of spiritual warfare. But if we don't recognize the reality of spiritual warfare, then we will be susceptible to all kinds of spiritual vulnerabilities. And namely, we won't be on guard when there is spiritual attack from Satan. This past year, I read a book um, called Stealth War right by Robert Spaulding. It's kind of a random book. It's it's not the kind of book I usually read. But uh, you know, basically, it, it's a book about, um, I guess, about the Communist Party in China and the U.S. and um, uh, things that are uh, going on. And I guess for me, it was kind of an eye-opening book because it was talking about how the the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, how they were already engaged in a war with the U.S. that the U.S. Uh, wasn't even aware of for a, a long time. Because traditional wars were fought with things like, you know, military power, but uh, the book was saying, you know, the CCP has been fighting a different kind of war altogether. And you know, a lot of the details were you know, eye-opening for me personally, because I wasn't aware of some of these things, but uh, the main point that the author was making is that for a Because the U.S. wasn't even aware that there was a war taking place, uh, it's led to all kinds of technological, economic, and political vulnerabilities. Now, if you aren't even aware of uh, a battle, right, if you aren't aware of the spiritual war with the devil, then you probably won't be ready to engage in it. There will probably be this kind of complacency that will leave you vulnerable to Satan's attacks. And we'll talk a little bit more about how Satan might attack in future passages when we look at the beasts in the next chapter. But it is worth reflecting on so that we can stand up against the devil's schemes. The book that most people have probably heard of regarding Satan's schemes is uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. Uh, But there's another book that was written, uh, I guess, way before that I found pretty helpful by Thomas Brooks called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And there's a place where Uh, He talks about how Satan will exploit the sins of the heart we are most prone to. And what he does is he uh, draws from some of the examples in the Bible. So he writes this. He says, whatever sin the heart of man is most prone to, that the devil will help forward. If David be proud of his people, Satan will provoke him to number them, that he may yet be prouder. If Peter be slavishly fearful, Satan will put him upon rebuking and denying of Christ to save his own skin. If Ahab's prophets be given to flatter, the devil will straightway become a lying spirit in the mouths of 400 of them, and they shall flatter Ahab to his ruin. If Judas will be a traitor, Satan will quickly enter into his heart and make him sell his master for money, which some heathens would never have done. If Ananias will lie for advantage, Satan will fill his heart that he may lie with a witness to the Holy Ghost. Satan loves to sail with the wind and to suit man's temptation to their conditions and inclinations. Uh, What a, a wonderful analysis of how Satan works and how he inclines the temptations in our hearts towards great sin. And so for a few weeks... Uh, we'll look at, um, I guess, this topic of spiritual warfare in these next couple of chapters. But uh, for today, what I want to do is I want set to set that up by looking at the bigger picture through this vision in this chapter. What this passage shows us is a great cosmic war. And this cosmic war, again, as I said before, recapitulates the same story of redemption. But now it is giving us greater detail into the great war in heaven and ultimately how that impacts uh, the people of God, the church. At the start of the chapter, John sees a pregnant woman and a great red dragon. Now, uh, some people, in particular Catholics, will interpret this pregnant woman as a Virgin Mary, uh, which is not necessarily wrong, but Mary is simply a part of a broader meaning in terms of uh, the meaning of this woman. Uh, The woman here represents the entire community of faith. And later on, there is a harlot who represents the community of unbelievers. So here it makes sense that the counterpart represents the people of God. And when she is pregnant, She represents the people of God, particularly expressed through Israel. And it's a way of saying that the child who is born, the one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, descends from the line of David and the tribe of Judah. And of course, this child is a reference to the Messiah, to Jesus. And it's a fulfillment of this original promise that you find in Genesis 3, where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between. You and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so Jesus, of course, descends from uh, ultimately uh, the woman in the garden from Eve. And after this male child is born, he is caught up to the throne, uh, to God and to his throne. And this is a reference to the ascension of Jesus. And after that happens, the woman flees into the wilderness for 1,260 days. Remember from last week, that number, 1,260 days, is a reference to a period of tribulation that takes place um, between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. It's the age that we are living now. So it's basically saying that the church is now living in this period of wilderness. Yes, this period is a season of difficulty and testing, but it is also the place where God will nourish the church. This uh, is an allusion to Israel's experience. After God rescued Israel from slavery, they were given a promise of entry into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan, but they didn't get there immediately. They had to endure a season of wandering in the wilderness where their faith would be tested, where they had to overcome. There were times where they lacked food and water, but God provided for them. Before they entered Canaan, they spied out the land and they saw that the city was well fortified and the people were large. And their faith was tested, but God provided. God gave them water from a rock and manna from heaven. God ultimately led them to conquer the Canaanites and claim the land that God had promised them. So you see, the wilderness is a place where there is both hardship and trial alongside experiences of God's great provision and nourishment. But it is, this final, it is the final place before the people of God would reach their final destination— And that is the age that we live in today. But, you know, this vision also gives us some insight into what we should expect from the devil. There's a great war in heaven, and it's depicted between Michael and his angels and against this dragon. Uh, Michael first appears in the book of Daniel, and he is identified with someone who fought against the prince of the kingdom of Persia and the Persian Empire. Uh, They continued the oppression towards against God's people after uh, they took over from Babylon. But according to Daniel's vision, the source of that oppression is ultimately demonic, and uh, the angel Michael was in a battle with the evil spirit of the kingdom of Persia. And so now John's vision picks up on Daniel's vision, and he sees this war in heaven where Michael is fighting against the dragon. And this passage clearly identifies the dragon as... The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. It's the very same person who tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's the same person who has been at war with God and tempting the people of God to sin throughout all of history. And it's the same person that the church is in battle with today. But there is a key difference in his disposition today. His disposition today is he is angry. He is raging. Why? Why? because he lost and he knows his time is short. The vision shows us the dragon and his angels were defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So the great dragon was thrown down along with his angels. And this happens ultimately because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That was a major blow to Satan. The slain lamb strikes a blow that is so powerful that Satan knows that he is ultimately going to lose in this war. Um, I don't know how many of you saw the Super Bowl last week, but uh, it would be like you know when Tampa Bay made that final interception and it sealed the game and all they had to do is basically wait out the clock and wait until time ran out, but um, they knew the game was won, right? And for the losing team, uh, sometimes when that happens, right, sometimes the, the losing teams, they start to get a little chippy because they know they lost and therefore they have nothing else to lose and they're angry about losing and so they attack the other team. Maybe with the intention of uh, hurting them or getting some cheap shots in. And in any way possible, they just want to bring somebody down with them. That's the position Satan is in. The death and resurrection of Jesus has struck such a major blow to Satan, he knows that he is going to lose. But the time, the clock has not yet run out. And so what he's going to do is he's going to attack from a place of rage and loss because he knows his time is short. Then John hears a loud voice in heaven saying this, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brother has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan here is called the accuser, and this comes from a vision that Zechariah has in Zechariah chapter 3, where you know, Zechariah sees a vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord in filthy garments, And Satan is standing at his right hand, accusing him. And one of Satan's main tactics is to bring accusation against the people of God um, that betrays, ultimately, the work of God. Now, it's not that Satan is pointing out the filthy garment, because sometimes we do need our filth pointed out to us, and that's not necessarily from Satan. But Satan's accusations would say, because your garment is so filthy, there is no way you can ever become clean. There is no way God would ever allow you into his presence. You are just way too filthy. And then what happens is that rather than turning towards God uh, to have your filthy garments clean, you turn away from God because of shame. You avoid his presence. So it's like having uh, dirty clothes. And rather than going to the dry cleaners to get them clean, you decide, uh, I'll just stay in some dark room so that people won't see how dirty my clothes are. Right? That's what Satan wants to do, and that's how he tempts us towards despair. Uh, you know, I was just reading this interesting quote by a guy named William Gurnall, and he was an Anglican clergyman in the 17th century, and he says this, uh, When thoughts or inclinations contrary to the will and ways of God creep in, many dear Christians mistake these miserable orphans for their own children and take upon themselves the full responsibility for these carnal passions. So deftly does the devil slip his own thoughts into the saint's bosom that by the time they begin to whimper, he is already out of sight. And the Christian seeing no one but himself at home supposes these misbegotten notions are his own. So he bears the shame himself, and Satan has accomplished his purpose. Uh, Really interesting statement. Have you ever had these thoughts that are contrary to uh, the thoughts of God? Have you ever had these thoughts that are contrary to the will of God that kind of creep into your mind? And if you felt condemned and if you felt left with shame for having those thoughts without considering the role of Satan, then Satan accomplished exactly what he wanted to accomplish. Now, oh, um, by the way, it's, it's no surprise that I'm finding all sorts of great reflections on the nature of the devil from all of these older writers because, again, they lived in a world where they they breathed this air, the spiritual war, I mean, the spiritual uh, air, the spiritual realm, and they were always thinking Uh, What is Satan doing in these moments? Now, I would guess during this pandemic, um, here's my guess. Many of us have probably heard accusations, right, (laughs) in our inner person. And maybe that's led to us feeling uh, some sort of shame or guilt or sense of unworthiness. Uh, You know, you can't perform your job as well as you used to. Uh, You don't feel like you're the kind of parent you should be. Uh, You don't feel like you're the kind of spouse you should be you don't feel like you're doing enough as a Christian. And maybe uh, the way you respond to those accusations is by saying, how can I go to God when I am such a failure? Maybe you say, you know, I haven't really prayed in months, and I feel really ashamed about it. How can I go to God when I haven't prayed in months? How can I testify about God when I don't even have my own spiritual life altogether? any of you've had any of these thoughts, and your response is to withdraw from God rather than to turn to him and Satan has done what he set out to do uh, through his accusations. But we have to remember is this, even when you feel like Satan has uh, has beaten you, you have to remember he will never win. He will never win. And this leads to the second part of what John hears. He this, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And the, the, the they here <laughs> refers to uh, the martyrs. And the irony of their conquering is that they didn't love their lives even unto death. Um, their victory was actually in their death. Uh, In other words, they were so faithful in their witness that even through persecution initiated by the work of Satan, they were able to be faithful to the point of death, and that is how they conquered. By the way, can I say, happy Valentine's Day, right? This is a perfect Valentine's Day message. And you're thinking, how is this a perfect Valentine's Day message? There's no romance here. Well, I'll tell you, this is a perfect Valentine's Day message because St. Valentine was a martyr, right? Saint Valentine was martyred in the third century and you know there isn't a ton of reliable evidence about his life, but supposedly, Saint Valentine helped Christians who were being persecuted under Claudius in Rome. And not only that, he also married Christian couples, which was a serious crime in Rome at the time. And I guess I suppose that's where the connection to the romantic aspect of the holiday comes from. Um, but anyway, he he tried to convert Claudius to Christianity, and uh, after he did that, the emperor got angry and demanded that he renounce his faith. And when St. Valentine refused to do that, he was executed on February 14th, 269. So happy Valentine's Day. If you want to uh, celebrate this uh, this holiday uh, the way St. Valentine would have wanted you to, go out and share the gospel and evangelize. Right? <laughs> All right? If this story is true, then St. Valentine overcame Satan by the blood of the lamb, and by the word of his testimony. Now, even though many of us may not end up being martyrs, probably most of us, right? But many of us may not end up becoming martyrs. There is something we should take away from what it says about the faith of the martyrs. That phrase, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. That is a phrase that really stood out to me. There is a sense in which a Christian should not love their lives too much because there are more important things in view of these greater spiritual realities. Death is not the end of us. It certainly is a painful, painful, painful blow, but it's not the end. The end is the return of Christ. The end is the final defeat of Satan. The end is the resurrection of the saints and eternity with God in the new Jerusalem. And so you see, the only reason the martyrs were able to refrain from loving their lives too much, even to the point of death, and hold on to their faith, is because they believed in this very thing. So more important than our lives in this age, in this moment, more important than that, it actually is the cultivation of our faith and our trust in God. If we can endure, if we can hold on to that, then we too will join with the martyrs in conquering Satan by the blood of the Lamb. Now, I do know, and I am very aware, there is a danger of over-spiritualizing things, and sometimes that has led to some abusive practices. Uh, Historically, I think about the Salem witch trials as an example of that. Uh, But for us, if I were to take a guess, um, if we were susceptible to error in one direction, I think my guess would be that we might tend to under-spiritualize things. Uh, We don't consider that Satan's hard at work as it relates to our life experience. We don't consider that Satan is behind uh, manipulating um, even large institutions to enact his will and to attack the church. After all, uh, he did it through Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. Uh, Why couldn't he do that today? You know, there's a lot of divisions. There's political divides and racial divides and economic divides, not only in the wider culture, but also dividing churches. Who is behind all that? To me, it sounds like something Satan would want to do. Now, that is, of course, not to say that we aren't responsible for our own sins and our own actions, because we are. Even though the serpent brought the temptation uh, before Adam and Eve, Adam was held accountable for his own disobedience. So we can't blame Satan as a way to justify our own sin and and disobedience. But we have to realize that, as Thomas Brooks says, there is one who is going to inflame the sins of the heart to bring us down. And what the church needs is to be united against the devil. Because as Paul says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Now, I am sure uh, some of us have been wondering in this pandemic what God could possibly be doing through this pandemic. And to be sure, we should consider that and think about that. But I would also suggest we should also wonder how might Satan want to exploit this pandemic to divide the church, to destroy our witness, to devastate our faith. Because if the spiritual battle is real, if Satan is angry, if he knows his time is short, then certainly he is going to want to attack. And we need to pray against that because even though we may grow tired um, and even though we might, um, I guess, put our guards down, Satan will never rest. Right? He will never rest because he knows his time is short. But as we fight and as we engage in battle, you know one of the things that Paul says in Ephesians six, he doesn't say, um, you know, be afraid of Satan. Uh, he says, be strong, right? Be strong in the Lord, because in this spiritual battle, because Jesus has dealt the final blow, because we have the blood of the Lamb, we do fight this battle from a position of strength. Uh, we do fight this battle knowing that we will be victorious in the end. Again, to go back to that football analogy, uh, we do know that this is the period where um, you know, we just have to make sure we don't fumble the football. We just take a knee and wait for the time to run out and the game to end, right? Uh, this is the age of the church. Uh, but still, there will be attacks, and we got to be aware of those attacks. we got to be keen to those attacks. Um, but we have to resist those attacks. And how do we do that? I guess as a longer answer, but for now, I'll just say quickly, the short and easy answer, it's prayer, right? Prayer is extremely important in engaging in this spiritual battle. So let's pray. And uh, I guess before we respond in worship, um, let's pray now. I guess from your homes, I'm, I'm going to give you maybe a few minutes and uh, you know spend some time in prayer, and especially thinking about um, you know thinking about your own vulnerabilities and the kind of sins your own heart is prone to uh, think about how satan might exploit those things and use those things and pray against it and pray that god would give you strength and uh, weaken satan's attack uh, upon us and uh, maybe after i don't know a minute or so I'll, I'll close this in prayer and we can respond in worship Thank <laughs> you. Uh, God, this is such a, a weird and strange time that we're living in. Um, and I, I mean specifically because of this pandemic and uh, how the patterns of our lives have been completely changed, um, how your churches now operate. Um, and, um, you know, of course, we, we trust in your ultimate plan and all the things that you're doing Um but there's also, you know, a reality of our experience where uh, you know sometimes things feel so hard. Uh, sometimes it feels hard to hold on to faith. Sometimes it feels hard to be encouraged uh, by the word. Sometimes it's hard to remember and to believe and to trust in you uh, in the midst of all that we're going through. Sometimes it's hard to uh, wage war and battle um, against our own sin. And uh, we know that Satan wants to exploit some of these things. Uh, we know Satan wants the, the people of God to be discouraged. We know Satan wants people to fall away, to turn away from you, um, to not believe in the promises that you offer to us in the gospel, to not know that we, have, we are loved by you, that you've been gracious to us, that the blood of the Lamb has forgiven us, that there is now no more condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And yet, there are times where we um, you know, hear the lies of the devil, the deceptions, the accusations of Satan. And uh, we, we pray, God, that you would strengthen us not to be deceived, uh, not to receive those accusations, not to be discouraged to the point where we turn away from you, where we give up. But God, help us to feel... Um, The power and the victory that comes in Christ. Help us to feel our our union with Christ to such a degree that we feel lifted up. That we feel like it's not our burden and our own strength, but um, it's a strength that we are lifted up by the power and the authority of the slain Lamb. God, your kingdom has come, and in that kingdom there is great authority. There is no need to fear uh, the evil one because he is defeated because his power pales in comparison to yours and so may we really be a people of strength Um, may we be strong in the lord as the apostle paul writes may you fill us with your holy spirit and remind us of the great strength and power that we have because Um, we are in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.